every great leader has at least one great speech in him. In fact, some people argue that no leader has more than one speech in them. They give lots of talks, but they've got one thing they care passionately about. It burns inside them. And so you can hear on them on a hundred different occasions talking about different subjects, but in the end, there's one core message that really drives them. That's what drives them all of the time. That is their vision. You probably feel that with me. You know, I, I kind of, you come Sunday by Sunday, I blab on about the same old stuff. Anyway, there you go. So leaders um, have one core message. I'm not assuming for one minute I'm a leader, but I am a, a minister who blabs on at the front, probably about the same thing. Anyway, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, little uh, excerpt from which we heard read to us, the Beatitudes, the Plan B, uh, that probably is Jesus' most famous statement along with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer and Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc., etc., are probably Jesus' most famous words. In fact, I would suggest that set alongside Moses' speech, the Ten Commandments, and David's poem, Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, probably the four best-known pieces of the Bible. So much so that, uh, have you seen the film, The Life of Brian? Who's, who's seen the film The Life of Brian? If you've not seen The Life of Brian, you really should go see it. You really should go see it. Do you know, when The Life of Brian came out, Christians, all sorts of Christians, across the country stood outside um, at cinemas with placards saying, do not go and see this film. You will be judged and you'll probably die and go to hell as a result of watching this piece of cinema. But it truly is a brilliantly funny film. But more than funny... It's actually a great piece of theology, actually. Um, the Monty Python team showed a lot more insight into Jewish tradition and culture than most of their critics in most of the churches. It is a very funny but brilliantly grounded and well-researched film. And of course, the class there are several classic lines from it, but it's one classic line. Jesus is on the hill, and he's giving his Sermon on the Mount, and he says, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, which gets misheard at the back of the crowd as blessed are the cheesemakers. You know that? And it gets gossiped all the way back to the crowd that Jesus has announced that cheesemakers will be blessed. And a whole new industry is launched by people seeking God's blessing through making cheese. Making cheese takes off in Palestine because Jesus said, Piece at the cheesemakers were in for, for a good deal. But sadly, I think that the church, Christians down through the centuries, these two millennia actually, have po possibly misheard and misunderstood uh, these simple statements of Jesus, the Beatitudes, um, as much as that crowd in, Monty Python, in the Monty Python film. Because we've read this a very strange way. Let me read to you again those verses. Jesus, it said, saw the crowds and went up a mountainside and sat down. We'll come to that bit in a minute. And his followers came with him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who want to get it really right, because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who get persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what the church has done, or many Christians have done over the years, in fact, in getting ready to uh, talk about uh, this, is an introduction to what we're going to be doing over the next nine weeks. We're going to take those clauses one by one. Next week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The week after, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we're going to look at what those clauses actually mean, week by week, plan B, the B attitudes, these our B attitudes, plan B, not plan A. We'll come to what plan A is in a moment. But uh, what people have done with this is they've used it as a kind of new, well, legal setup. In fact, if you look online or read commentaries on this, people was, I, I saw it written just, um, just yesterday, actually, yesterday evening. Somebody had written and they said, just as Moses went up Mount Sinai and was given the Ten Commandments and comes down with these tablets of stone which say, do not kill, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie. So Jesus intentionally goes up a mountain to say that he's the new Moses and issue a new law. These are the commands for Christians. And the commands are these. Get poor in spirit, because then you will inherit the kingdom of God. Start mourning now. Look miserable, because then you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not the arrogant, not those who get out there and mix it up. Blessed are the shy, because they will inherit the earth in the end. Blessed are those who are merciful, get merciful now, because if you're not merciful, God's not going to show you any mercy. So we turn them into a new set of laws. In fact, they've been taught about that way in lots and lots of places. A new set of laws that Jesus sets. And it's because of this that lots of people have actually rejected Christianity. I don't know if you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of Friedrich Nietzsche, and uh, uh, the famous philosopher who later, after his death, had his work picked up by Adolf Hitler who created a museum for him and, uh, and, and made his writing, the teaching, the centre of his Nazism. And uh, uh, Nietzsche has gone down in history, therefore, as a pretty bad guy. After all, he is the guy that said, God is dead. And then... Hitler tries to dominate the world because of his teaching. Actually, there's a little bit more to it than that. So I'll just say this as one side. In the, uh, the, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Nietzsche's God is Dead statement, or it's best to read the paragraph around it, at least. But if you read the paragraph around it, not the, it, the whole, whole chapter, let alone the whole book, what he actually says, he says, God is dead, God is dead, God is dead. And then he goes on to say, and we, we are the ones that have killed him. We polished him off. We've removed him. 
and woe to us because who can help us now? We've killed God and there is now no compass, no moral compass, no true north. We have no foundation. There is no rooting system left. We are rudderless. We're at sea. We're washed away because we have murdered God. Um, Hitler, Adolf Hitler, got the wrong end of the stick, actually, about what Nietzsche was saying, mostly because Nietzsche, I don't know if you know, he went insane in later life, and he spent the last years of his life being looked after by his mother, and then his mother died, and then he was looked after by his sister, who was married to a man who was very right-wing. And as Nietzsche went insane, they took his works and re-edited them and rewrote them, basically, with a real right-wing spin on them and pushed them out. And so emerged this idea of the Superman and the super race, which Hitler picked up on. What Nietzsche did say was he said that God had died and, and that society had rejected God. And one of the criticisms he made of Christians was this. God's died because the God you believed in wants us all to go around weeping. He picked up on the Beatitudes. Your God wants us all to be poor and mourn. Get weeping now and you'll be blessed. Get mourning now and it'll be good for you. Get poor now because it will all work out for you. Get poor, get sad, get weak, and it will work out. And Nietzsche said that breeds a kind of false humility in people, and it puts people down, and it's the way they end up living. A kind of upside-down uh, uh, upside way of thinking about merit, isn't it? Whereas in society, those who are rich and wealthy and proud and successful... And good-looking get everywhere. Jesus is saying, get ugly, get weak, get miserable, get poor, and then it will work out for you. An upside-down, I can't say that word this evening, uh, so I won't say that uh, word, meritocracy. An upside-down meritocracy. A kind of new set of rules and regulations. And all spiritual giants through history have been these people who've been poor and had nothing. Mother Teresa is wonderful because she was poor and she spent her time on the streets of Calcutta and she was mourning. That's the way we should be. And so into this gets built this inevitable sense of guilt. Because as we read it through, you go, no, I'm not poor and I'm not very meek. In fact, I'm a bit loud-mouthed. And I'm not mourning. In fact, I'm all the people who think they're loudmouthed looked at someone else then. It was an amazing giveaway. There you are. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm not very poor and, and I'm not very meek and, and I'm not mourning. In fact, I'm quite enjoying life, which is really bad news. It's almost like we take this passage to mean you've got to get at least one of these things going in your life if you're ever going to be rescued by God. If you can't get poor, get mourning. If you can't mourn, start being meek and shy and humble and creep around. Develop a really bad sense of self-esteem. If you can't do that, become a peacemaker now. Get merciful. Give everything away. If you can't do that, 
make sure you get persecuted. It's almost like these have become a list and you've got to be able to tick at least one thing on the list to get in. It's not salvation by works, but it is salvation by attitude. Get a bad attitude quick because that's going to help you eternally. It's really going to get you somewhere. So what I want us to do right now to introduce this subject is unpack the background of it and tell you this, that I believe that the church for the vast majority of the time has completely got the wrong end of the stick about this. And then explain very briefly what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. So, back to where we started. It says, now then, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his followers came to him and he began to teach them. Now that's an extraordinary thing. When Jesus saw all the crowds, he went up a mountainside and his followers followed him and he sat down and he began to teach them. You've got to understand the context of all this just br briefly. Galilee is filled with religious teachers. There are Sadducees, there are Pharisees of various camps, right wing, left wing. There's a whole pr um, priesthood going on. There are rabbis on every corner. Galilee, as part of Israel, we know now was crowded with religious teachers more than any other part of Israel, actually, at this time. There were hundreds of people selling religion to you one way or the other. So here's the question. Why on earth would anyone follow yet another religious teacher up a hill? Well, there were religious teachers on every street corner. You didn't need to go up a mountain to listen to one. You needed to go up a mountain to try and get away from them and get a bit of peace. So why did these people follow Jesus? And then, if that's the immediate background, a little bit of the, the wider background. The people of Israel, of course, lived under two burdens. The burden of the religious leaders, their own religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and the burden of the Roman regime. Talk about the burden of their own religious leaders to start with. Their own religious leaders had a real good, a good well, a real simple way of teaching. If you lived well, God blessed you. If you didn't live well, God didn't bless you. A real sign that you were doing God's will as if you got rich. That's why they thought that shepherds were sinners. Because they must be sinners because they had such a lousy job. A smelly job. Shepherds, all shepherds, were sinners because they must be doing something awfully wrong to end up as shepherds. The Jewish teachers believed in a kind of health and wealth philosophy. If you did good stuff, you got blessed. If you didn't, you went down. And all of the people who followed Jesus in chapter 4, the chapter before chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount is introduced, you, you read it and uh, you see that Jesus has begun teaching right at the beginning of the Gospel. The first couple of chapters of Matthew, of course, are taken up with Jesus' birth narrative and then he gets baptised and in chapter 4 he begins to teach. And as he begins to teach, people begin to follow him around and then it says he goes up a mountain and everybody follows him. Why do they follow him? Back to that question. When religious teachers were such bad news. The burden of the Jews. But there was also the burden of the Romans. 
Romans had a similar kind of philosophy. The man who dominated the whole of Roman culture at this time was Aristotle. You can actually read all about him, if you like, to him in uh, my book. I talk about him. That's not a plug for my book. It's just I'm not going to go into that. But let me say that Aristotle... Here comes a lovely lady. Hello. There is a toilet. You can borrow it. I'm sure that someone will take you to it. Goodness me. There's a load of you wanting the toilet. There you go. Great. No, that's all right. <laughs> Ladies who are desperate need help. They are. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the thing is, what did, the, what did Greeks believe? Aristotle, the greatest mind there was. He lived 350 years before Jesus, and he believed this, and he taught this. If you live the good life, do you know that phrase we use, the good life? We talk about the good life. Where did it come from? It came from Aristotle. Aristotle first penned the term eudaimonia, which we translate the good life. So, um, you know, when uh, years and years ago there was that comedy on telly called The Good Life. It was The Good Life because of Aristotle. Aristotle wrote down what he thought amounted to The Good Life. And he said The Good Life was accompanied by wealth and health and friends and security. If you lived the good life, you would get wealthy. If you lived the good life, you'd get healthy. If you lived the good life, you'd get security. If you lived the good life, you'd get career. If you lived the good life, you'd get friends. So, just for a minute, imagine these people that have been listening to Jesus. Everywhere they went, they got told they didn't count. Everywhere they went, they got told, you're the kind of people that God won't bless. That's what they've got to told by, the, by the, the Jewish leaders. And by the Romans they got told, you're the kind of people who have never made it because you're lazy and look at you. You've not got a good life because you don't deserve one. They were put down. And then comes Jesus teaching. And here's the extraordinary thing. They go up the mountain to listen to him speak. No one's dragging them. No one's making them do this. It's not like, do you know, you've got to go to church. They didn't have to go to church. No one's going to check up if they weren't there. It wasn't some obligation. You know that joke that always gets told about this guy who wakes up in the morning and he says to his mum, he says, Mum, I don't want to go to church. I can't go to church today. I hate church. I don't want to go. And she says, Son, you've got to go. You've really got to go. Get out of bed and go to church. And he says, but mum, I don't want to go to church. Why should I go to church? And she says, you've got to go to church. He says, right, give me one good reason why I have to go to church. And she says, you're the vicar. That's why you've got to go. So there's this kind of thing, isn't there, where, oh, we've got to go and do that religious thing because we'd be missed if we don't go. No one was going to miss these people if they didn't come up the hill to listen to Jesus. They went because they wanted to, which should in itself, in fact, that's what Matthew intends us to think, boy, there must have been something pretty special about this guy because in a country full of religious oppressors, some, somehow and for some reason, everybody wants to follow him and they follow him right up the hill. And what does he really say? 
he teaches them this blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek blessed are the shy ones blessed are the in, uh, those who are intimidated the unassertive the back of the queue kind of people blessed are the people who are the kind of never get a word in edgeways at a party kind of people the meek blessed are those who are merciful blessed are the poor and this is so countercultural; it's absolutely the reverse of what these people have ever heard they've always been told you're nothing you're going nowhere you don't count and jesus says you can but what we've done oh here come these uh, lovely ladies again do come through hi everybody are you feeling better you're going to get a sausage roll and, a, and some juice. Okay. Of course it is. Get a, wait, give them a sausage roll. Have a sausage roll. You can have two. You can have two. Have two each. I don't want you getting overweight. All right. Okay. Great. All right. Cheers. God bless you all. We haven't got any juice. You'll have to just go with your sausage rolls. No. All right. See ya. Bye. There you go. Blessed are those who need sausage rolls and juice. And that's just the point, you see. <laughs> that's exactly the point. Jesus wasn't saying, you better get poor to get blessed. He wasn't saying, you better get meek to get on the list. He wasn't saying, you better get merciful or you better get mourning quick. Do at least one of these things and then you're in. It wasn't like being poor or being meek or being a peacemaker, or being, um, uh, uh, or, or, or being merciful, or getting persecuted was a, re was a way of getting the reward of God's blessing. It wasn't that at all. What Jesus was saying is, even those who are poor, and mourn, and are passed by, and forgotten, are blessed. Why are they blessed? Not because they deserve to be blessed, but because God blesses everyone. He blesses the poor as well as the rich. He blesses the meek as well as the loud. In the Roman world and the Jewish world, the loud got blessed, but the meek didn't. The successful got blessed, but the persecuted obviously weren't. The rich were blessed, but the poor weren't. And Jesus is saying, Every human being is blessed. Every single one of you. Don't judge one another. Here's the good news. Everyone's in. That's what our circle of inclusion on our walls and in the Oasis logo is about. That's why we've got the circle of inclusion. Everyone's in. And everyone being in is messy, which is why the Pharisees and the priests and the Romans and the Greeks left some people out. They loved a neat circle which basically consisted of people like them, who thought like them, whose behavior they found acceptable. 
But Jesus wanted to include everyone. You can be blessed without being poor or mourning. But our task is like God to include the hungry and the mourning and the poor and recognize that in ourselves. But as I conclude, you kind of think to yourself, oh yeah, okay, that's just a piece of history. So how does it apply to us today? And does it apply to us at all? Because we are inclusive now. Hey, over the last two days, we just had this fantastic conference. Some of you will know about it. It was packed to the doors here. Uh, our, <coughs> our conference opened church where we were looking at the inclusion of the LGB and T communities. It was brilliant. And we say, can't. well, you know, it's that kind of inclusion we need to work at because everything else is cracked. But is that true? Let me read this. Blessed are the slim, for they will get noticed. Blessed are the good-looking, for they will get invitations to parties. Blessed are the young, they'll be given opportunities. Blessed are the smart, people will respect them. Blessed are the fashionably dressed, for they will be called cool. Blessed are the well-paid. Everyone wants to hang out with them and network with them. Blessed are the qualified. The qualified get listened to. Blessed are the fit. And blessed are the athletic. The people who look the part. What about the curse in our society over the misshapen, the disabled, the ugly. Who looks out for those with thinning hair and receding hairlines? The bald, the wrinkled, the flabby, the grey, the old. Those who smell bad. Those who are not relentlessly engaged in romance, sex, fashion, and physical activity. Who blesses the crushed ones, the divorced ones, the burnt out ones, the broken, the drug heads? What about the incurably ill, the barren? What about the pregnant too many times from too many men? What about the overemployed who could never stand still and pay attention to any conversation? Or the underemployed that are depressed? The unemployed? What about the unemployable? The awkward? The lonely? What about the incompetent? What about the dying? What about the emotionally starved or the emotionally dead that it's hard to be around and engage with? The HIV positive. What about the person with history? The cheat? The filthy rich? Jesus looked at a thief dying on a cross 
who cheated his way through life and was getting his just rewards. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I put it to you that Jesus' statement on the cross as he looked at that thief was just a living out of his inaugural speech. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who cheat. Blessed are those that no one else has time for. For they can inherit the kingdom of God. It's a line, I think, in the song that we're going to sing. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. There is no pain, no suffering, no loss, no way your life has been scarred or broken, no piece of history that God's touch does not heal and change. The Sermon on the Mount is this riotous celebration that where the kingdom of God is, the advertisers are not in charge. And our society is driven by the advertisers. If you look good and you look right and you're in the right places with the right qualifications, your face fits. The people followed Jesus up the mountain because their faces didn't fit. But here was good news. I'd like us to close by, um, I'm, I'm going to ask Kat to put this text up. These brilliant words are taken from a story in the Old Testament, as you can tell, from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, and verse 7. Let me tell you the story. These words are actually uttered by a prophet called Samuel. And Samuel has been asked to choose the next king of Israel. And uh, lots of people line up. And in the end comes David this young shepherd boy with no experience and, and no track records and, well, he's young and he's weak and he's not a military hero. And um, David's dad, uh, Jesse, sends all his fine sons, his older sons, his experienced sons, his firstborn, and Samuel looks at them all. And then in the end, Jesse sends David begrudgingly because he just doesn't think he's worth it he's the run he's the end of the pack and Samuel looks at young David and he says this the Lord does not look at the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about that's what the Beatitudes are about. The A plan is you get what you deserve. The A plan is smart people get stuff and other people get left out. The A plan is those who are cool and fit and trendy and, and smart and fast, they get networked and they get on. The B plan is this. That doesn't work because it leaves us all out in the end because we're all vulnerable. And Jesus came to say, the B plan is different. It's about God's attitude to you and our attitude, therefore, to others. So I'd like to conclude by just um, leaving a short moment to reflect. 
and the moment is to reflect on these words the Lord does not look at the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart I think there are two things two questions to ask yourself what does this mean for you and then the Beatitudes pose another question what does it mean for our attitude to others we suddenly find we're included but what does it say about who we should include that we've always put down the Lord does not look at the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart